Hello everyone, Matthew Thrift here with Berkshire Hathaway Home Services Seed and Joiner Realtors here in lovely Greenville, South Carolina. Today we're going to be going over SCR Form 310, commonly known as the agreement slash contract to buy and sell real estate. Hope you enjoy. The very first thing I want to start off with is the fact that I am a broker in charge. I'm not an attorney. I don't play one on TV. And so what I want everybody to know here is I'm going to be going over this contract with the understanding and knowledge that I have as a broker in charge with the training and experience that I've had with the contract with my uh, service and uh, volunteering on the SCR forms committee um, to have a knowledge and understanding of this particular document. Now, I may say something that you may not agree with. I may say something that your broker in charge may not agree with. If I am not your broker in charge, please understand that you need to go by what your broker in charge is saying, not by what I am saying here. So that's my disclaimer. Again, not an attorney. If you do not work underneath my licensure, please talk with your broker in charge before making any decision, before putting anything on this document and make sure that your broker in charge is in agreement with exactly what you're doing with this particular document. The very first section in the contract is the parties. The parties are the buyer and seller. That is very, very self-explanatory here in this contract. The party is defined as either the buyer or seller. The party is defined as both buyer and seller, as you can see in the contract. The brokers are either the agents or the brokers in charge. The closing attorney is who your buyer wishes to choose or your seller wishes to choose as well, depending on the situation. The effective date is when all parties have reached understanding in terms of the contract and the fact that both parties have received it, signed it. There's nothing to be left to be signed or initialed or dated. Everybody has a copy and everybody's been notified that it has been sent. So that is the effective date of the contract and that is the date that the contract actually goes into ratification status or effective state. Good funds, if there's a check that's written and it's bad, uh, that is not part of the contract. So all checks or any sort of transfers have to be in US dollars. They have to be good. They have to be able to be cleared and or cleared at the time of contract. All the time is obviously we're in South Carolina. So it is the Eastern Standard Time. So it is 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. That is 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, what we're used to seeing here in South Carolina. We can't go by California time or Pacific time or Mountain time or Central time. We have to go by Eastern standard time. And what I want to point out is time is of the essence with all respect to all provisions in terms of this contract. Right below section one, you see a, a bolded underlined section that talks about the buyer or sellers of South Carolina real estate licensee. This has to be in the contract because this is license law. If you are a real estate agent and you are buying a piece of property or you are selling a piece of property, your status as a real estate licensee has to be disclosed to all parties of the contractor negotiation. You must let people know that you are in real estate. If you have a family member that is purchasing real estate, you have to disclose that as well. If you have a cousin that you're helping in real estate or as a buyer and you're representing that buyer and he is your or she is your cousin, you must disclose the fact that they are related to you. So any sort of familial knowledge or uh, family status, you must disclose per state law. Now, right below that, it discusses the fact that the buyer and seller, they're either a client or a customer in the transaction, and they have 
are in receipt of the South Carolina disclosure of brokerage relationships, and they've been given that form and they've received it. That's just an acknowledgement that they know exactly what that form says. They've had a meaningful explanation of it. They're acknowledging having that um, and having received that information from it. Right below that, section two, the purchase price. That's very self-explanatory. If a house is $400,000, you're gonna put $400,000 in that line. You can do the dollar amount. If you wanna write it out in uh, standard English wording, I, I would recommend that too, just to make sure that nobody could ever change that price. You've got the dollar amount in actual numerical numbers as well as the words as well. It's either gonna be payable in full finance, uh, VA and USDA or 100% financing. That's where I would check that. Um, check that box as far as finance, if it's VA or USDA. If it's a combination of finance and cash, this is typically like your FHA or your other loan types, a conventional loan. If it's an 80-20 conventional loan, you'd be 20, putting down 20% cash um, and then the other 80% would be financed. And then obviously, if you have a buyer that's fortunate enough to pay cash off for a house, um, then you would check the all cash USD there, USD cents for US dollars. Right below that is verification of cash available for closing. You can either get this at offer time or you can delay it that it's not attached and you can have the buyer and the buyer agent deliver that to the listing agent, the seller, and to be delivered before a certain date. You wanna put a date in there. The contract is either gonna be contingent upon the buyer actually selling a piece of property in order to buy the piece of property. So it'd be a contingency sale and it's either gonna be contingent or not contingent upon that. And if it is contingent, um, you really, really should have the form 504, the buyer sell of real property form, and that is either attached or is not attached here at our office. If there's a contingency, I require the form 504, no ifs, ands, or busts, the form 504. Uh, is required at Berkshire Hathaway Home Services, Cedar and Joyner Realtors. Section three, property. This talks about the seller will convey the property and the buyer will buy for the purchase price, any and all lot or parcel of land, a pertinent interest and improvements. Landscape systems, fixtures, if any they're on and further described below, it's called the property. Real property, that is what we're selling. Theoretically, we're not selling personal property, although there's a space uh, right below this that talks about personal property. But when it talks about the property, they're talking about the property in itself. Any updates, a pertinent interest, appliances, things like that that are built in. Um, the seller agrees to maintain an operable condition, the property, and any personal property conveying in the same operable condition, including any landscape, grounds, and any agreed upon repairs or replacements from the effective date through closing. So if the HVAC is working on the date that the property is uh, goes under contract or the contract becomes effective, but during the time between contract to close, the HVAC no longer works, it is now the seller's responsibility to get that repaired prior to closing or to put it back in the same operable condition that it was. The buyer acknowledges the opportunity to inquire about owner's association issues, common area issues, condominium master deed issues, assigned parking and storage areas, memberships, leases, issues, and financed equipment prior to signing a contract. What does that mean, financed equipment? It could be a alarm system, it could be a camera system, leasing issues and items and finance equipment, see adjustments, uh, as far as, you know, it could be uh, tenant leases, could be future vacation renters, any sort of leases that are in place must be disclosed. If you have, uh, again, if you're leasing a uh, propane tank, you need to disclose that. And if you have any sort of solar panel uh, lease agreement in place, all that has to be disclosed to the buyer. So this is more for the seller's uh, information as well, but all that information must be disclosed. If there's anything involved in the property, 
I like to say there's no such thing as uh, over disclosure. I believe you should disclose anything and everything you possibly know about the property, anything whatsoever. I hope that helps. And right underneath that, this is very, very self-explanatory. Not going to spend a whole lot of time here. Address, city, state, zip, any unit numbers, the lot number. A lot of times, especially here in Greenville County, we don't know the block or phase. And so a lot of times you'll see those either left blank or you put an NA or a UNK unknown. What's really important here is the address and the tax map number. Make sure you have that on there. That is very specific for the closing attorney to make sure they're pulling the right information for the deed prep and title work to be done. And right underneath that, it says parties agree that no personal property will transfer as part of the sale, except described below. Now, the many lenders that I've spoken with have said that lenders are now okay with or allowing refrigerator and washer and dryer to be in these lines. Now that may be different where you are and your broker may find that to be um, not appropriate. Here at Berkshire Hathaway Seed and Joiner, our lenders have, have uh, let us know that uh, refrigerator, washer and dryer uh, can be in those lines. Now, if you're having, uh, like where I live, um, I have a, a little bit of acreage and so I have two riding tractors that I utilize. If I wanted to sell those with the property, those need to go on a separate bill of sale and that needs to be run in conjunction with the contract. So any other personal property outside of refrigerator, washer and dryer really should be on a bill of sale, no ifs, ands, or buts. Now, if it's a cash contract, you can put anything in here. Uh, there's gonna be no lender. The attorney doesn't really care what you're transferring. Cash is you know, what they call king. So uh, you could put any personal property in there if it is a cash sale. But if it's a loan, please, please, please remember refrigerator, washer and dryer. It really should be the only thing in here any other personal property should be on a bill of sale. Section four of the contract talks about the closing date. And most of the time, uh, the rule of thumb, so to speak, is you know your government uh, loans like your FHA, VA, USDA, they're always gonna take, most of the time, I shouldn't say always, most of the time they're gonna take a little bit longer than your standard conventional loans. But I like to use the rule of thumb by at least 30 to 35 to 45 days, typically. Now, some lenders will promise they can get that done. If they can, fantastic, great. Um, but I used to like to, I like to use 35 to 45 days out on a government type of loan. Um, so that means if you're contracting today, today's December 15th, 2022, um, you may want to have a date of January 31st or January 30th. That's around 30, between 35 and 45 days. A conventional loan, most banks, most lenders, most correspondent lenders can get those done within about 30 to 32, 33 days, typically, depending on if there's any holidays. Now, um, not going to read the entire thing, but it does talk about that right in the center of that uh, paragraph there, there's some blank lines. It, the names on the deed of exactly how the names should be written on the deed. Now, what I would strongly advise you against doing is putting any sort of type of deed there. If you're putting joint tenants with right of survivorship in that line, that is skating the line or a gray area of possibly giving legal advice. And as real estate agents, we cannot give legal advice in any way whatsoever. So my, uh, my recommendation is to strictly put what the buyers want on the deed and make sure you put full legal names there um, that would just help you and let the attorney, the closing attorney, describe the type of deeds that the buyer can have. Seller shall convey possession of a vacant and reasonably clean property free of debris, along with all keys, codes, any remote controls, available documents, manuals, we get a lot of questions about this seller shall convey a vacant and reasonably clean. What's reasonable to me may not be reasonable to somebody else. 
what's reasonable to you may not be reasonable to somebody else. But reasonably clean, we like to use the term when I was in foreclosure, we would call it broom swept condition. Um, so, you know, when you're representing a seller, let them see this, let them know, hey, when you vacate this property, the property needs to be reasonably clean. Now, I didn't say professional. If you want a professional cleaning, you probably need to be asking for that in the contract somewhere to make sure that the both, party, uh, both parties, the buyer and seller, understand that that is a term of the contract that really needs to be completed by the date of closing if it's a professional cleaning to be done. Going down in section five is about earnest money. Um, now that very first line is gonna be the total amount of earnest money that the buyer is putting down. And just for example today, um, we're gonna use $1,000. If a buyer is putting down $1,000 of earnest money, it's gonna be paid as follows. The first line, if the $1,000 is automatically being paid or provided to the buyer's agent or over to the listing uh, agent or to the attorney's office. If it's $1,000 in the first line, and if it's automatically being given up that same day, it's gonna be $1,000 in the second line, and then accompanies this offer. And then that third line, dollar amount will be paid by 6 p.m. on such and such date. Now, there's a couple things you could do here. If you want to have $1,000 and you wanna pay that, let's say five days from now, you need to put that particular amount, $1,000, on that particular date. Been seeing some, and I'm not suggesting this, but you, uh, this has uh, been starting to happen. Uh, many people are starting to write contracts now because this is a full due diligence contract that if it's $1,000 of earnest money, they'll make the earnest money due maybe two days after the expiration of the due diligence date. Nobody says you can't do that. It's clear in the contract that you can. So just depends on what your broker wants or what your what's gonna be in the best interest of your buyer and or seller. You just decide there, but you can do all sorts of things. If you wanna pay $1,000 of full earnest money and you wanna give $500 today, you'd put $500 in that second line and then $500, let's say a week from now, you can do that as well. This contract allows you to do that. You can pay it by check, cash, or it says other and it says example wire. A lot of times people are wiring funds to closing attorneys now uh, and you would put that, you would just, write out exactly what other is. Uh, to be a credit to the buyer at closing, a disperse only as parties agree in writing or by a court order. This talks about any release of earnest money funds or as required for closing by closing attorney. The buyer and seller authorize blank as the escrow agent. Now here at Berkshire Hathaway Home Services, Cedar and Joyner Realtors, we do not hold earnest money. Our buyer's attorneys, the closing attorneys will hold earnest money for us. Um, and if that's the same way in your firm, great. If your firm holds it, it would be your firm's uh, name there as the escrow agent. But here at Berkshire Hathaway Home Services, Cedar and Joyner Realtors, we have attorneys hold earnest money. So the attorney name or whoever's holding that earnest money will become the escrow agent to deposit and hold and disperse earnest money according to the terms of any separate escrow agreement, the law and any regulations. So I'm not gonna read any further, further of that. Um, just wanna let you know, uh, that's how you would uh, divide up earnest money or have it do it's uh, later date, um, and that's how you can do that with the three lines. Right underneath that is a very large paragraph, and it's all bolded, and it talks about the fact of how earnest money is dispersed, okay? And here in South Carolina, you can only release earnest money by an agreement by both parties or by the order of a court of competent jurisdiction. So it says, the parties understand and agree that under all circumstances, including default, the escrow agent or slash the holder of the earnest money will not disperse earnest money deposit and to either party until both parties have executed an agreement authorizing the disbursement. And it says, example, SCR Form 518 or Form 517. Those are our two escrow money disbursement uh, documentation through the South Carolina Association of Realtors. 
uh, or a mediation agreement, or until a court of competent jurisdiction has directed disbursement. Uh, for example, the interpleader court, the magistrate's court in, here in Greenville County or in your county, wherever you are at. Earnest money cannot be dispersed until it's known to be good funds. So if earnest money is deposited with an attorney and the attorney deposits a check, that check may take a few days to become clear and become good funds. So even if there's a disbursement agreement, that attorney cannot release those funds until it is that check has cleared the buyer's bank and it becomes good funds and it's good money to disperse. Um, if legal actions uh, occur related to earnest money, party receiving the least amount of earnest money in the court's disbursement order agrees to indemnify escrow agents, the fees basically paying the escrow agent a fee for, for any such court cost, uh, court costs and the attorney's fees. If interpleader is to be utilized, parties agree that blank shall be paid to the escrow agent by the parties as compensation before the escrow agent initiates court of competent jurisdiction proceedings on earnest money. Now what this is referring to, there's a lot of uh, misunderstanding here. Uh, our recommendation here at Berkshire Hathaway Home Services, Cedar and Joyner Realtors, and with the our, our current um, preferred attorney is that we put $250 here in this blank line. What that $250 covers, it covers the uh, the filing fee for the interpleader action if uh, the preferred attorney has to file that in the interpleader court. It also covers a little bit of their time to fill out the few documents that it takes to file an interpleader action. So $250 is about a standard amount uh, for, for our particular um, uh, preferred attorney, uh, but that may be different where you are, maybe different with your preferred attorney. But here at Berkshire Hathaway Home Services, Cedar and Joyner Realtors, we are okay with you putting $250 in that line. Going down to number six, transaction costs. This includes the buyer's and the seller's transaction costs. And this is a little lengthy here, and I'm not going to read all of it, but just so you know, your buyer is going to have their closing costs, your seller is going to have their closing costs. And right in the center is a little short paragraph that talks about all costs to obtain information from or pertaining to owners associations and blah, blah, blah. You, you see that there. It be, can, can become the seller's or the buyer's transaction cost. So if there's any costs involving like uh, a, a HOA or a homeowner's association that has a transfer fee, you can divert these uh, costs to be paid either by the buyer or seller. I've also seen that both of these boxes can be checked and the closing attorney can divide up any of those fees between the buyer and seller uh, to make it fair and equitable if you want to do that. It says if no box is checked, these costs will be added to the seller's transaction costs. So listing agents be aware of that when you're looking at these contracts. Uh, the last paragraph there at closing, the seller will pay buyer's transaction costs not to exceed a blank dollar amount. Now this is traditionally your standard seller paying a portion of the buyer's closing costs or all of the buyer's closing costs. It's a dollar amount, it's not a percentage, it's just want you to be aware of that. If your lender is telling your buyer you're gonna need $6,000 of closing costs to cover all your costs and your buyer wants to ask the seller to pay for this, that's where that would go. So not a whole lot there. Just understand that it's a dollar amount, it's not a percentage. And that very, very last line, it says, unless otherwise agreed upon in writing, the buyer will pay their buyer's trans transaction costs and the seller will, uh, shall pay the seller's transaction costs. So typically, if no transaction costs are being asked for by the buyer to be paid, then the buyer's gonna pay their side, the seller's gonna pay their side, and everybody's just gonna go, uh, go away from the, from the closing paying what is their responsibility to be paid for. Number seven is our finance section, and this discusses any type, time a buyer is going to have a loan to purchase a house. It's pretty self-explanatory. There's a few things in here that may uh, cause a little bit of heartburn or misunderstanding, but let me try to explain that. 
Um, it says the buyer's obligation under this contract is contingent or is not contingent upon obtaining financing of either 30 year, 15 year or other. It could be a 10 year loan. It could be a five year adjustable rate mortgage, whatever you want to put in that other section. Purchase money loan at reasonable prevailing market term with loans equal in amounts to maximum to a maximum of blank percent. So let's just take, for example, the 80-20 conventional loan. If a buyer is putting down 20%, it's going to be contingent upon the buyer obtaining that loan um, and being qualified and being uh, provided that loan by the lender. And they're going to put down 20% and they're going to finance a maximum of 80%. So that's where that 80% would go. So if you're doing a 5% convention, and they're gonna loan 95%, you'd put 95% in that blank. Now it goes on a little bit further there, and I would highly encourage you to read this entire contract. I'm gonna say that multiple times throughout the contract video. Read, read, read every section and go back and read it again. Now, this is my understanding what I teach with the next few lines here. I've talked to multiple lenders about these lines and the way that the loan portion works. Um, it says buyers shall apply for financing by Blank. A lot of times buyers will have a pre-approval or a pre-qualification letter. Pre-approval obviously is a little bit stronger than your pre-qualification letter. Um, but right here, if the buyer has not applied, they may just have a pre-approval letter that you've submitted with the offer, um, but they haven't yet made loan application because of the fact that there was no property for the loan officer to have this loan put upon. So typically within about two days after a contract is ratified, you know, that is the date. So if a contract got ratified today as it's December 15th, that contract, the buyer is supposed to apply or per this contract, you know, it's, if it's supposed to be applied by Monday, it would be Monday's date. Um, but let's say they're going to apply by tomorrow, which would be December 16th, which would be Friday. So therefore, you'd put December 16th in there that the buyer is going to absolutely make loan application for that. Now, typically the second line, uh, it can get a little bit uh, convoluted there. Um, and I, uh, again, just going by me talking to lenders and me talking with other professionals in the industry, I am of the belief that the second line um, discusses the initial underwrite of the buyer's financing. So the buyer applies for financing. They have the property in place. The loan officer takes all of their documentation. They submit all of those documents to an underwriter. An underwriter looks at it and basically pre-underwrites the loan to say, if the buyer continues to meet these conditions, they have nothing come up on their credit report, they don't go out and buy a car and mess up their debt to income ratio, they don't lose their job, multiple, multiple things, the property has to appraise, that takes about, typically with most lenders I'm hearing, takes anywhere between 10 and 14 days. So if you have December 16th on that first line, you may wanna have December 30th on that second line, especially with the holidays, uh, to be uh, the initial underwriting of the loan. Uh, it goes on, it says, if the buyer changes their lender during the financing period, they must, not they may, it says they must notify the seller in writing within blank calendar days. Now, um, I'm of the belief that we're in a digital society. Everybody has cell phones, everybody has email, everybody has text messages. Um, if the buyer changes financing, I I'm of the belief that can be done in one calendar day. But if you need two or three calendar days, you can do that if it's the weekend especially. Um, absent written approval by the seller, look what it says, absent written approval by the seller, the buyer cannot change the lender if the closing date agreed upon above in section four will change as a direct result. 
If a lender subsequently declines or fails to approve financing, the buyer shall, not may, shall notify the seller and brokers as soon as possible. If the seller and brokers are notified of inability to obtain financing during the financing period, either party may terminate this contract by notice. And that could either be Form 518 or Form 313, the notice of termination. Goes on, it says that the lender name there, notice it says may change because of the way the paragraph is written. So if you have, uh, let's see, ABC or ACME uh, loans that are, is doing this particular financing, you'd put their name in there. And if it's an FHA or VA, you would check that. If it's a conventional, you check that. Um, let's say it could be seller financing, you could check that. And it says, goes on to say, an FHA or VA financing addendum is or is not attached. Um, I will say this, most of the time, even though our state has FHA and VA amendatory clauses, many lenders do not accept those. They want to have their own FHA and VA amendatory clause. So just be prepared. If you don't have one at the time of contract, if you're doing an FHA or VA loan, you will be seeing that from the lender in the future. It says additional financing terms are not attached. Those can be anything uh, with correction. It may be the seller that has additional financing terms with what they want to do. So they may or may not be attached. Most of the time, I don't see that as a broker, but if you know, it's there for if you need it. This past year in June, we went from a repair procedure as is due diligence contract to a full due diligence contract. And I actually have to say full actually in quotes because we're not like North Carolina. We don't have a full due diligence contract where due diligence is through the entire portion from contract to close, incorporating financing and appraisal and termites and things like that. Our due diligence is basically for uh, inspections and repairs. Okay, it does not include your termite wood infestation. It does not include your appraisal contingency and it does not include your financing contingency here in South Carolina. So this due diligence period is a period for the buyer to make all of their inspections, to do any sort of uh, investigation that they want on the property, including off-site conditions. And we'll discuss that here shortly. Uh, but the very first line, it says, the due diligence period begins upon the effective date and shall expire at 6 p.m. on blank date. It's a hard date. It's not this many days after, it is a hard date. So if we're gonna contract today, December 15th, and we want, let's say, 10 days of due diligence. Well, let's make it 11 days because that would be Christmas. So let's make it 11 days of due diligence. The due diligence would expire on December 26th at 6 p.m. Any extension to this date must be made in writing and agreed to by both parties. So during those 10 days, the buyer has, is, has the ability to make any inspections, to do any sort of investigation or inspections on the property, roof inspection, home inspection, radon, whatever other type of inspections that the buyer wants to do, um, that is up to them. If they wanna go and look around the neighborhood at night um, to see what's going on in the neighborhood, if they wanna drive by in the, on the weekend to see how busy the neighborhood or during school hour to see how uh, much traffic is there, that is completely and totally up to the buyer. And it says that all in the number one, two, three, four, and five right below that, that they can do all of that during their due diligence period. Now. Um, I, I want to stress this. It says during the due diligence period, the seller agrees the buyer may rely on the following list of five items. And it talks about what I was just talking about until the buyer timely and properly terminates the contract or the parties agree on an amended contract. The buyer can rely on number one, two, three, four, and five. That that's exactly the type of inspections that they're doing. 
Delivering a repair request does not extend the due diligence period. So just because your buyer deliver, delivers a repair request, it does not extend this period of time. That repair request that's delivered by the buyer must, must be completely negotiated and executed prior to the due diligence period. If you cannot do that, you must extend if buyer, or both buyer and seller are willing to extend, okay? So delivering a repair request does not extend the due diligence period. So moving on, talking about termination. Termination during the due diligence period, the buyer may unilaterally, meaning one party, the buyer may unilaterally terminate this contract only, look at that, it says only, by delivering to the seller both the notice of termination and the termination fee of blank US dollars good funds. Now I get a lot of questions on this. How can this be paid? Can we put a zero in there? Well, the answer is can you put a zero in there is yes, you actually can put a zero in there. Is that possibly a good thing for your seller? Maybe not, maybe that's gonna be completely and totally up to the parties in agreement with this contract as a term of the contract. Now, let's go back. It says the buyer may unilaterally terminate this contract only by delivering to the seller both notice of termination and a termination fee. If there's $500 termination fee, and I'm not suggesting any sort of amount, I don't want you to take that as part of this video, there's no suggested amount in here. There's some good practices, and in another video, I have good practices of due diligence. You may wanna check out on my YouTube channel or other uh, areas where I have this video posted. You can see uh, some information about the due diligence termination fee. But if there's a $500 termination fee and the buyer wants to terminate during the due diligence period, the buyer must deliver that $500 to the location address posted at the end of this contract. If it's the listing agent's brokerage, uh, that would be the typical where the check would be taken. Um, that, that, that notice of termination, Form 313, and that $500 made out to the seller must be delivered simultaneously. One cannot be delivered without the other. If it is, the contract has not yet been terminated. Until both are delivered at the exact same time, the contract is still in place. Now let me stress this very, very much. If you miss the 6 p.m. deadline, this contract goes into an as-is contract as stated right below in, in all bold. During the due diligence period, the buyer should buyer fail to obtain a newer amended contract, meaning there's been an amended contract with the repairs and the buyer and seller have come together. If they fail to reach that with the seller or buyer fails to timely or properly due diligence terminate the contract during the due diligence period, meaning they didn't make that six o'clock deadline, the buyer agrees to buy and the seller agrees to sell the property as is. And the parties agree as is means the buyer buys the property for the purchase price while seller maintains the property from the effective date through closing subject to normal wear and tear, otherwise without repair or replacement and sells the property for the purchase price unless otherwise agreed, agreed in writing by the parties in this contract. That due diligence date is extremely important. I cannot stress this enough. Please do yourself a favor, give your buyer enough time and make sure you have enough time or the buyer has enough time to deliver that termination fee if they choose to terminate, deliver it prior to the 6 p.m. deadline, otherwise you go into an as-is contract. I cannot stress that enough. Section nine talks about the inspection or re-inspection rights. It says the buyer and South Carolina licensed and insured inspectors reasonably perform any reasonably, or correction, reasonable, ultimately non-destructive examination and make reasonable record of the property with reasonable notice to seller through the closing. It's, look at that, it says through closing. 
including investigations of off-site conditions and any issues related to the property at buyer's expense. Otherwise, none of these as your inspections. The buyer and persons they choose may make reasonable visual observations of the property. Now, on the next page, page four, the sellers will make the property accessible for inspection and not unreasonably withhold access unless otherwise agreed in writing by the parties. Seller will grant the buyer the right to perform a final walkthrough. Look at that. It says the seller will grant the buyer the right to perform a final walkthrough inspection of the property within 48 hours prior to the closing date. Most of the time we see final walkthroughs as the date of closing or the night or the afternoon before closing. The seller will keep all utilities operational through closing unless otherwise agreed. Now, be very, very careful of this listing agents. I've seen this a lot happen, especially with vacant properties. If a, if a seller has already moved out, the house is vacant, they don't want to continue to pay for electricity, please reiterate they cannot turn off those utilities prior to the closing. Now that next box we don't see a lot unless this is more of a, uh, you know, as is sale or distressed property foreclosure a lot of times will not have utilities. It says the seller grants buyer permission to connect utilities, pay for utilities and hire professionals to safely connect uh, the utilities during the inspections. Most of the time we don't see that in standard residential uh, but you, you will see that during uh, foreclosures. And um, so that would be where you would need to utilize that particular box. It talks about the, the indemnity here, uh, the, the underlined words there. It says buyer will hold harmless, indemnify, and actually pay, pay damages and attorney's fees to seller and brokers for all claims, injuries, and damages arising out of the exercise of these inspection rights. The seller will hold harmless, indemnify, pay damages and attorney's fees to brokers for all claims, injuries, and damages arising out of the exercise of these inspection rights. The brokers recommend that parties obtain all inspections as soon as possible, and brokers recommend that parties and inspectors use insurance to manage risk. So if an inspector goes and works on behalf of a buyer and the inspector puts a hole through a wall, it says the buyer will hold harmless and pay for those repairs, pay the seller to repair those, and that the seller will hold harmless the real estate agents for that particular third party inspector doing that work. That's basically what that means on layman's terms. Remember, let me reiterate, I am not an attorney. If you have any question as far as what indemnify or hold harmless, I would highly encourage you to speak with one that is an attorney and one that's passed the bar exam, which I have not. Section 10, appraised value. Property is either gonna be contingent upon appraisal or it's not. That's just basically what this section says. It's either contingent upon the property appraising for the purchase price, or the second box, the contract is not contingent upon the property being valued at the appraised value, according to the lender's appraisal. Biggest thing I wanna point out in here, uh, right in almost in the center of that first paragraph, says if the parties are made aware that the appraised value is less than the purchase price, let's take for example the $400,000 purchase price, let's say it only appraised for $380,000, it's less than the purchase price and the seller delivers notice to buyer. Look at that, it says the seller delivers notice to the buyer within five calendar days or closing. Now what's gonna happen here is the buyer is going to hear from the lender first that the property did not appraise or the buyer's agent. So then what's gonna happen, the buyer or buyer's agent is gonna then notify the listing agent, the listing agent is gonna then notify the seller. The seller by this contract has five calendar days to decide what they want to do, how they're going to go about, whether they're going to reduce the price down to $380,000, whether they're gonna stick it to $400,000, it says the seller makes that determination within five calendar days. Then it goes on, if the seller is aware and refuses to reduce as stated above, the buyer, this is where the buyer has action, the buyer may proceed to closing or terminate this contract by delivering notice of termination to the seller. 
So if the seller is going to say, no, I still want $400,000. I don't care whether it's uh, appraised for three hundred eighty, Mr. and Mrs. Buyer, you need to come up with $20,000 to buy my house. The buyer can do that. They can proceed to closing. Uh, there can be an amendment to the price. Let's say that they came to $390,000 and the buyer is only going to have to come up with $10,000 and they can proceed to closing at that. Or if the seller just absolutely refuses, no, I want $400,000 and the buyer says, no, I'm not giving you any more money. It only appraised at this at $380,000, the buyer could terminate and uh, terminate the contract by delivery notice. That second box, this contract is not contingent upon the property being valued at an appraised value according to the lender's appraisal or other appraisal as agreed upon by the parties for the purchase price or more. So uh, maybe this is a cash deal. Maybe the party is putting down 50% in a loan deal and the uh, appraisal is being waived by the lender. All sorts of reasons you can use this particular portion of the contract. Just it's not contingent. So if the property does not appraise for the purchase price, means nothing. Um, therefore, you just proceed to closing and that's not a re uh, reason to have a contingency within the contract. It literally removes the appraisal contingency in the contract. Section 11, the wood infestation report, otherwise known as the CO100 report, the wood infestation report, the wood destroying organism report, all that clumped up into this section right here, uh, talks about whether the contract is contingent upon the uh, wood infestation report. So if the property to be sold has been previously occupied, this contract is contingent or not contingent upon the buyer or seller. Most of the time it's the buyer having the property inspected at their expense by a qualified licensed bonded pest control operator selected by the buyer or seller. Most of the time, again, that's the buyer. The buyer or seller shall deliver timely notice of and shall deliver to closing a CL100 wood infestation report dated no earlier than 30 calendar days prior to closing and no later than blank calendar days prior to closing. So I get asked a lot, what should I put there? Totally up to you as far as a time frame. If it's my recommendation, I'm, you know, I'm thinking, you know, 10 to 12 calendar days prior to closing, because if there's a problem uh, with the wood infestation report, that allows the seller time to remedy that. Um, the seller makes no warranties with regards to matters covered by such infestation report or any other improvement unless specifically stated in the contract. And then the second paragraph can get a little confusing. Um, but I'm going to try to make it very, very simple for you. If the wood infestation report reveals the presence or indication of or damages by termite infestation or other wood destroying organisms, the seller shall, look at that, sh seller shall remedy such deficiencies and shall furnish the buyer with a CO100 wood infestation report by a qualified licensed bonded pest control operator dated no earlier than 30 calendar days prior to closing that the property is free from infestation or any damage herein or documentation that the infestation has been treated and damage has been repaired as appropriate in a workmanlike manner on or before closing and reported and reported by an appropriate licensee. So state law and regulations control CL100 issues if the seller does not make the repairs and treatment. Now look, at the beginning it says the seller shall, but then in the middle of the paragraph it says if the seller does not make the repairs and treatment, the buyer shall have the option to, number one, accept the property in its present condition, Number two, negotiate with the seller for the payment of these repairs and treatment. Or number three, terminate this contract by delivering notice of termination to the seller. So I'm not going to continue on. You can read that for yourself. Um, not much to be said there unless it's in it not been previously occupied. They're going to get a wood uh, soil treatment letter from a builder. But that is basically it. You have three options if the seller decides not to make any repairs. If there's a problem, you either accept it 
negotiate it to have it done or negotiate how y'all wanna work that. Or three, you terminate the contract by delivering notice to the seller. Section 12, the survey, title examination, elevation, insurance uh, brokers recommend buyers have property surveyed, title examined, elevation, wetlands, beachfront, determine an appropriate insurance, whether they need flood insurance or other types of hazard insurance at, effective at closing. Um, not a huge section here. Uh, it says the buyer to obtain new insurance policies by closing and the seller may cancel existing insurance after closing. Flood insurance if acquired by lender at, at or buyer's option shall be assigned to buyer with permission of carry and premium prorated to closing. Buyers are solely, look at that, buyers are solely responsible to investigate pricing, availability, coverage and requirements of insurance, flood, flood contents, hazard liability for the property prior to signing contract. Not a whole lot here, just understand we as brokers, we recommend surveys, we recommend title uh, 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 insurance, we recommend title exams, we recommend all that to protect the parties within the contract, okay? So we do recommend those things that's stated right here in black and white. Section 13 is the shortest section of the contract, but it can have the most impact depending on the circumstance. It's often overlooked, but we're gonna talk about it and we're gonna read the whole entire thing. If any provision herein contained which by its nature or effect is required to be observed, kept, or performed after closing, it will, not may, it will survive the closing and remain binding upon for the parties hereto until fully observed, kept, or performed. Now let me give you an example here. The example is a cracked window pane. Um, especially here just right after COVID, the supply chain got really difficult and uh, windows and construction materials started being, being really hard to come by and they were on back order. So let's say during the inspection, a window pane was found to be broken. The buyer asked for the window pane to be corrected or, or remedied or replaced. Um, the seller did everything in their possible, everything possible to try to get that window replaced. And unfortunately that particular window was on back order and it was gonna be six weeks before it would come in. This section states that the parties can close, but that window needs to survive closing to be replaced. So the buyer may be in the property another five weeks until that contractor that was hired by the initial seller that ordered the window comes back and replaces that window. And if the seller refuses to do that or does not follow through, they can still be in violation of the contract or will be in violation of the contract because it says that that particular portion of the contract, it will survive and remain binding. Now, there needs to be a document or an amendment written that that particular portion of the contract, the window replacement by such and such date, six weeks from now, um, to be installed by whoever the contractor was to be paid for by the seller, whether the money's being held at the attorney's office or the contractor has already been paid by the seller, that still survives closing. So it could be a huge impact uh, and, on a seller if they do not comply with that particular term of the contract. Section 14, home warranty coverage. The parties agree that a home warranty ordered by blank, most of the time that's the buyer agent, not all the time, but a lot of times we'll see the buyer agent, with at least 12 months of coverage after closing date will or will not be provided. So if the buyer's asking for home warranty or the seller's offering a home warranty, maybe the seller has already got the home warranty on the property and it's been ordered by the seller, you could put that there as well, and it will or will not be provided uh, at closing and the dollar amount of which the, the home warranty costs will be paid by and most of the time that's the seller um, to the home warranty company 
buyer to pay any deficit. So if it's a $500 that the seller's offering, but the home warranty costs $700, the, the seller's gonna pay the 500, the buyer's gonna pay the extra 200 to cover the deficit, and the proposed HWC slash or home warranty company and type. So if it's XYZ warranty, first class upgrade, you'd put that in that line. And it talks about how the fact that some home warranty companies will provide a compensation if their home warranty is sold back to the brokerage that sold, sold it. I'm not gonna get involved in that due to RESPA, but they've come around that, so there's a way to do that without violating RESPA nowadays. You know, just wanna make sure that that is disclosed and that's in our contract to protect you as the agent. Section 15, fire or casualty or injury. Uh, this is a little bit misunderstood, but I'm gonna to try to explain it. Uh, in case the property is damaged wholly or partially by fire or other casualty prior to closing, what I like to call acts of God, parties will have the right for five calendar days after notice. Look at that, it says parties, either one. Parties will have the right for five calendar days after notice of damage to deliver notice of termination to the other party. If party does not deliver notice of termination, the parties proceed according to the contract and the seller is to be responsible to, number one, repair all the damage, number two, remit to buyer an amount sufficient for repairs, or number three, assign to buyer the right to all proceeds of insurance and remit any deductible amount applicable to such casualty. If buyer or inspections caused the damage, the buyer is responsible for indemnifying seller for damages, which we've already discussed in the inspection in section nine for damages. Brokers and parties should ensure that they are protected by appropriate risk management strategies such as insurance. We've already discussed that. Now, let's talk about hail, okay? Hail in the Southeast, uh, not often, but it happens. And a lot of times what we'll see is a property will be under contract, a big hailstorm will happen, and now we've got hail damage on a roof. And the buyer lets the seller know, hey, I know there was a hailstorm here last night, or the seller lets the buyer know there was a hailstorm, we've got damage on some gutters, we've got damage on the roof shingles, uh, we're gonna be making an insurance claim. You don't have to necessarily cancel the contract. You don't have to, the buyer doesn't necessarily have to cancel the contract and find another property. The seller can actually notify the home insurance company. They can assign that particular claim uh, for that property and they can assign any finances to go to the buyer so the buyer can then pay for a new roof or new gutters or whatever the case may be. So just because something happens doesn't necessarily mean that you have to cancel the contract or walk away. Just be sure that it's up to both parties if a casualty happens, if a tornado comes through or hail or fire or whatever, uh, each party has five calendar days to decide what they wanna do. That's a pretty self-explanatory uh, paragraph here. Section 16, the South Carolina Residential Property Condition Disclosure Statement, otherwise known as a seller's disclosure uh, here in South Carolina. Uh, it says that either the buyer and seller agree that the seller has delivered part of this contract, a seller's disclosure, or the next paragraph says, the buyer and seller agree that seller will not complete or provide a seller's disclosure. And I'm kind of paraphrasing that just for time's sakes. Um, but there are multiple exemptions within South Carolina license law that a property would be sold without a seller's disclosure. Uh, for sake of time, uh, I'm not gonna go through all those exemptions. You could look those up in South Carolina code. The main ones are an estate or foreclosure or a familial sale. But uh, most of the time you'll see a seller's disclosure on a property and it says, the buyer and seller agreed that the seller has delivered prior to this contract, the seller's disclosure, so the buyer has the opportunity to look at the seller's disclosure. Now, when I was in sales, I always recommend, always, I did always recommend 
um, that we have that prior to ever putting an offer in on a property. Now, there are some times where that may not be the case. It may be a brand new property and the listing agent does not have it back from the seller yet, but the buyer wants to go ahead and make an offer on the property. Um, you can put, you can have an attorney write up other language. Let me say that an attorney write up other language that it could be contingent upon the buyer seeing the seller's disclosure and agreeing to the seller's disclosure and making that a contingency with attorney approved language. But most of the time you're going to see a seller's disclosure uh, on associated docs in the multiple listing service. And the buyer can look at that, make the offer, submit the seller's disclosure along with the offer. And you just fulfilled section 16 of that contract. Section 17, lead-based paint, lead hazards, federal, federal law. We do not mess with federal law here. If the property was built or contains items created prior to 1978, it may contain lead-based hazards and parties agree to sign the disclosure of information of lead-based paint or lead hazards forms, which is a SCR form 313, and gives copies to the brokers. Everybody needs to sign. The brokers slash agents, they all need to sign that form, the parties, Everybody needs to sign here. Parties acknowledge receiving and understanding the EPA pamphlet. Protect your family from lead in your home. Buyers agents, make sure you are giving your buyers this particular pamphlet. It is digital. You can email it to them. Make sure they have a copy of it. But if the property was built before 1978, you need to have a lead-based paint disclosure. No ifs, ands, or buts. This is federal law. We do not get away with this. We always have a lead-based paint disclosure on anything built before 1978. The buyer should conduct and obtain inspections on of all property issues per their needs. So if a buyer is concerned about it, they can have that lead-based paint um, inspection completed. Just to make sure with your contract built before 1978, you must have a lead-based paint disclosure. Section 18, the sex offender criminal information. I'm going to read this because I do not want to mess this up. This is very important because there's some very specific language in here that I'm gonna be very specific on. The parties agree that brokers are not, let me say that again, the parties agree that brokers are not responsible for obtaining or disclosing information in the South Carolina Sex Offender Registry and no course of action may be brought against any brokers for failure to obtain or disclose sex offender or criminal information. Buyer and seller agree that they have sole responsibility to obtain their own sex offender, death, psychological stigma, clandestine laboratory, and crime information from sources, for example, law enforcement, private investigator, the internet, or the web. The buyer may obtain information about the sex offender registry and persons registered with the registry by contacting the local county sheriff's office or other appropriate law enforcement officials. Case in point. It is not your responsibility as a real estate licensee, especially here at Berkshire Hathaway City and Joiner Realtors, to disclose or obtain information from the registry. Let's avoid that at all costs. Let the buyer and or seller get that information for themselves, direct them to local law enforcement or Federal Bureau of Investigation or whoever to get that information from. Please do not go down that road. That can be a slippery slope that can wind you up in a lot of trouble. Section 19, the trust account. When a attorney is holding earnest money that goes into their trust account. Trust account simply means it is the money of somebody else and the escrow agent is holding it in trust. The person that gave them the money is trusting them with their money. There's only two boxes to check in here. It's either may or may not place deposited earnest monies into an interest bearing account. Now, my recommendation here is I don't know if an escrow holder has an interest bearing account or not. So I'm going to just bear on the side or err on the side of caution and say, 
It's understood that the broker may have that money placed into an interest-bearing account because if the attorney has an interest-bearing account and you don't know, you'd have to ask every attorney whether their account is interest-bearing. It may. Now, most of the time, if a brokerage is holding it, it is not an interest-bearing account, and then you would check may not. Here at Berkshire Hathaway Home Services, Cedar and Joyner Realtors, we do not hold earnest money, so we do not have an interest-bearing account. We don't hold it. So uh, we're going to provide that to an, uh, an attorney, and that may be an interest-bearing account. So 99% of the time, if I can use a percentage on this, um, it's going to be an interest-bearing account, or it may be. So just go ahead and check may, err on the side of caution, and you fulfilled that obligation. Section 20, the South Carolina income tax or non-residents gain and compliance in USA federal income tax section. The seller and buyer will comply with the provisions of South Carolina laws regarding state income tax withholding, withholding requirements if the seller is not a resident or has not filed South Carolina income tax returns. The seller and buyer will comply with the United States of America federal income tax laws. The seller and buyer should discuss tax laws and minimization actions with the their qualified tax advisor. Parties will comply with all local, state, federal laws and any rules. Now, if you're not a resident of South Carolina and you're selling a property in South Carolina, more than likely the attorney is gonna withhold a portion for state income tax. Um, you need to discuss that with the attorney. You need to have the seller discuss that with a tax accountant. We are not tax advisors. We are not accountants. We do not provide that kind of advice. Please, please, please recommend that they speak to a tax advisor or that attorney to decide or what's gonna happen with any sort of any gains or taxes when it comes to selling a property that is for investment purposes or, or whatever. Section 21, the entire and binding agreement, otherwise known as the merger clause. This is basically letting you know that this is a legal and binding document. Once it's executed, um, it is legal and binding and the court would have jurisdiction over it. Parties agree that this contract expresses the entire agreement between the parties and that there is no other agreement oral or otherwise modifying the terms and this contract is binding on all parties and principals, heirs, personal representatives, successors and assigns. Illegal provisions are severable. So this becomes a legal and binding document. So if you violate the terms, if you default on the terms, there are obligations that or default remedies that could you could be facing. So we'll go with that in section 23 down below default, but we'll let you know once they sign, legal and binding document. Section 22, adjustments. Not gonna spend a whole lot of time here, but basically we are gonna discuss about taxes and utilities, any sort of adjustments, and if there's any sort of rents that are due on the property. Again, I'm not gonna to get too far in the weeds, but if let's say for the easiest one is taxes. Let's say it's December 15th, well, it is December 15th today, and the seller is selling and they're closing on December 15th. The seller is responsible for the taxes from January 1st through December 15th. The buyer is then responsible for December 15th through December 31st. It's a proration. It can be done in rents or deposits or any other fees or insurance that are on the property. Um, so just so you know, that's basically what that section is talking about. Um, it says the section survives closing. The buyer is solely responsible for timely and reasonably minimizing the buyer's taxes and obtaining tax minimization procedural information. What that's talking about is whenever a buyer closes here in South Carolina, the county that you're closing in automatically assumes it's an investment property and they're going to tax you at an investment rate. It is then your responsibility or the buyer's responsibility to make notice to the county tax assessor's office that that is the buyer's primary residence and the tax uh, liability would be minimized. Here in South Carolina, it's uh, investment property is 6% 
and the buyer's uh, portion is a 4%. And believe it or not, it's not just a standard percentage rate. It is a significant difference between 6 and 4%. So that says it is the buyer's responsibility for doing so. So please, buyer's agents, keep up with your buyer even after closing to make sure they've done that. I have seen several times where buyers forget to do this. And for many years, I've seen one at least 10 years, the buyer was actually paying the 6% instead of the 10 years they should have been paying at 4%. So they were way overpaying for taxes. And unfortunately, the county would not go back and reimburse that to them. So make sure that the buyer does that after closing. The, the attorney's gonna explain all this to them to just wanna make sure that you as a buyer's agent also uh, let them know or follow up and say, hey, have you filed for your, your tax proration to be your primary residence? Hopefully that'll help. Section 23 is the default section. There's a lot of discussion about who would be in default if this happened or this happened. I'm not gonna read every line on here. Just understand that section A talks about how a seller can default. If the seller defaults in the performance of any of the seller's obligations, the buyer could do one, two, three. Uh, you can read that. And if the buyer defaults in the performance of any actions, the seller, the seller may be able to do one, two, three. But let's look at section C and D, okay? says if either part if either or both parties default parties agree to sign an escrow deposit disbursement agreement or release agreement that's uh, either section or correction form 518 um, which you can default and you can divide up the earnest money you can have the earnest money to go to the seller you can have the earnest money to go to the buyer but both parties agree to do so okay it says that in the contract i've seen some sellers or some buyers refuse to sign it and that just holds up everything it muddies the waters but section c of this contract says the parties agree to sign this disbursement agreement if there's a default. Now, I really like section D here because a lot of times defaults happen and it may not be an intentional default. Section D covers that. Parties may agree in writing to allow a cure period for a default. If within the cure period, either party cures the default and delivers notice, parties shall proceed under the contract. Now, let me give you an example of this. An example of this would be if earnest money was due December 16th. We, 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 we contracted today, December 15th, and the buyer said, I'm gonna have the earnest money to you on December 16th. And unfortunately, we have bad weather today. The buyer gets a flat tire, they get involved in an accident, whatever the case may be, they get sick, they slip and fall, whatever, and they cannot get the escrow money by December 16th. The buyer then notifies the buyer's agent, the buyer's agent notifies the listing agent, the listing agent notifies the, the seller. The seller says, oh my gosh, that's terrible that this has happened. No problem. If you can just get me the earnest money by Monday or Tuesday of next week, it's perfectly fine. That is basically taking section D into account. The seller's gonna allow a cure period. It's, an ex it's a mistake, it's an unintentional act or a default, and you can do that. Um, I would highly encourage you to um, write an addendum to change the date that the earnest money is being uh, deposited. So all parties are in agreement. I would not go on anything oral or verbal here or even an email, write an addendum to state that the earnest money date has been changed to such and such date, but that's the cure period. That's what we're talking about in section D. Section four is mediation. Now this is put in our contract, and you know, through the assistance of the National Association of Realtors, our state association has mediators. Even our local association here in Greenville has, uh, they can, uh, you know, help mediate. It may not be binding, but they can also lead you to other mediators. And what this does is if there's a default and the parties want to sue one another or one party wants to sue another, um, this, this section of the contract states that, you, you know, you don't have to necessarily go and automatically obtain an attorney. You can hire a local mediator to mediate so that costs stay down. Because once you start a lawsuit, 
costs can add up very quickly. And a lot of times the cost of the lawsuit may well override the actual cost of the default. But there's mediators here in Greenville. There's mediators all over the state. Uh, your parties can look at doing mediation prior to ever contacting an attorney to go for actual court lawsuit. Now, I will say this in South Carolina, um, all parties, even if there's a lawsuit, have to go through a mediation session before um, lawsuits will ever see the inside of a courtroom. So just so you know, this may be a good alternative for some parties that uh, have something that they want to discuss or try to uh, remedy between them both. You have that uh, opportunity and this talks about that in section 24. Section 25, the non-reliance clause, not a merger clause, nor extension of a merger clause. Basically what this states is that the parties are executing this contract freely and voluntarily without reliance upon any statements, representations, inducements, promises, or agreements by the brokers. Okay, so this protects us or parties except as expressly stipulated or set forth in this contract. So basically, parties, buyer, seller, they're gonna go into this contract. We may have given them some information, but they're making their decision free and clearly without, uh, without depending solely upon us. It says the parties acknowledge that brokers are being retained solely as licensed real estate agents and not as an attorney, I've already talked about this, not as a tax or financial advisor, appraiser, surveyor, engineer, molder quality, air quality expert, home inspector, or otherwise professional service provider. Let me just say this. We have this section in here, it protects us. Stick in your lane. If you do not have a law degree, if you are not a tax accountant, please do not talk about those things, refer them out. I've already discussed this. I like to say, stay in your lane of real estate. Section 26, the broker disclaimer, the parties acknowledge that brokers give no warranties or reputation, representations of any kind expressed or implied to as, number one, we're gonna go through these, the condition of the property, including but not limited to termites, radon, mold, asbestos, moisture, environmental issues, waste, uh, water, or air quality, HVAC utilities, plumbing, electrical, or structural. We can't give any warranties or representations of any kind on anything like that. Number two, the condition of the property, survey or legal matters of square footage. Number three, any off-site conditions. Number four, schools. We know that schools can be changed at any time. Uh, number five, title, including but not limited to easements, encroachments, projections, encumbrances, restrictions, covenants, setbacks, and the like, fitness for a particular purchase of the property or the improvements. Number seven, zoning ordinances and restrictions. And number eight, projected income, value, marketability, taxes, insurance, or other possible benefits to the buyer. Parties consent that their brokers may communicate with them via any means and use or disclose information not made confidential by writing in, uh, by written instruction of parties. We give no warranties to anything. We're here to talk about the property and we're gonna give them advice on how to handle the contract or close phase. But when it comes to these other things, we don't know anything about HVAC or plumbing or air quality or things like that. The condition of the property, offsite conditions. This is a pretty broad, expansive uh, paragraph to basically protect us as agents. Section 27, the broker's compensation. It says parties direct closing attorney, basically the buyer and seller direct a closing attorney to use settlement funds to collect and disperse broker's compensation to brokers in accordance with agreements and documentation, correction, document compensation on the settlement statement. If a party disputes a broker's compensation, so for example, they buyer says the buyer's agent didn't do their job and they don't think they should be paid. 
That party agrees to retain a South Carolina law firm to escrow only the disputed amount of brokerage compensation until the dispute is resolved. It goes on and says parties agree that brokers are third party beneficiaries to this contract. So we're not a party to the contract. We're third party beneficiaries. We're, we're, we're gaining money to perform and help the parties perform on this contract and have a standing to seek remedies at law and equity if we don't get paid. So parties represent that their only enforceable agency and or non-agency agreements are with the brokers disclosed in this contract. Parties consent to brokers possibly receiving compensation from home warranty companies and or others if compensation is paid in accordance with the laws and realtors ethics. Again, we're talking about RESPA here, but they're just getting, uh, letting the buyer and seller know, once again, if there's other parties, we may be receiving compensation from those as well. Section 28, attachment or other contingencies, terms and or stipulations. There may be attachments to this contract. Any other attachment outside of Form 310 should be listed here. If you have a Form 390, which is the blank addendum, Form 391, the clauses for addendum, the Form 504, the buyer-sell contingency, uh, the bill of sale, whatever can be put here. Um, that's where you want to state that other documents are uh, going along with this contract. You want to list them here. Um, not a whole lot else to be said about that particular uh, section, so let's move on. Section 29, notice and delivery. You've got to be very, very, very cautious here. Notice is any unilateral communication, any unilateral one-party communication. For example, offers, counter-offers, acceptance, termination, unilateral requests for better terms or associated amend or amendments from one party to the other. Notice to or from, watch this, notice to or from a broker representing a party is deemed notice to and from the party. If I, as a listing agent, notify the buyer's agent, I've sent it, I've emailed it, that is considered notice from the seller to the buyer. All notice, consents, approvals, counterparts, and similar actions required under contract must be in paper or electronic writing and will only be effective as of delivery to the notice address, email, fax written below, and awareness of receipt by the broker, unless parties otherwise agree in writing. So what are we saying here? If I email a executed contract at three o'clock in the morning as the listing agent to the buyer's agent, and the buyer's agent would be sleeping like a normal person would, they do not have notice that that has been, or, or awareness, that that offer is sitting in their email box. So that has not, the notice and delivery has not been um, made full here. You have to have notice and delivery. If you're submitting an offer or an executed contract back, email it or hand deliver it and let the agent on the other side know. They must be made aware. That's how you have notice and delivery. Section 30, acknowledgements. I've had a lot of problems with wire fraud. So this is just a section to let everybody know and the parties know they are solely responsible to verify all wiring instructions with the law firm or the bank. Do not get involved in that. Let the buyer and or seller verify all wiring instructions with the bank or law firm. Parties are also advised and understand that audiovisual surveillance may occur in the property and the parties should plan accordingly and comply with all federal, state, and local laws. Basically what that's saying is, is that you, you can't have cameras in bathrooms, okay? Let's, that's, a, that's a private area, even in somebody's house. You can't have a camera in a bathroom, uh, but they have to comply with other federal, and state, and local laws. Parties acknowledge receiving, reading, reviewing, and understanding this contract. 
the South, South Carolina Disclosure of Real Estate Brokerage Relationships form, any agency agreements, copies of these documents, parties acknowledge having time and opportunity to review all documents and receive legal counsel from their attorneys prior to signing. So as an agent, you need to say, and you need to let, uh, let your party know, let your client or customer know, hey, is there anything that you need to have a better explanation of or need an explanation of? We need to get an attorney involved. Um, if I have not done a good job of explaining it to you, I want to make sure you understand it before you sign it. That's just the acknowledgement there that the buyer and or seller have understanding and knowledge of what they're signing off on in this contract, what the contract means. So that way um, there nothing comes back on you. You've provided them the opportunity to get legal counsel prior to signing. Section 31, the expiration of the offer. This is pretty easy, but let's go through it. When signed by a party, and intended as an offer or counteroffer, this document represents an offer to the other party that may be rescinded or taken back any time prior to or expires at blank time, a.m. or p.m. May be rescinded or taken back any time prior to that. Prior to that time on such and such calendar date, unless accepted or counteroffered by the other party in written form delivered prior to such deadline. So if I wrote a contract yesterday, December 14th at two o'clock in the afternoon and my expiration was this morning at 9 a.m., I need to hear back from that listing agent prior to 9 a.m. They either need to accept it, negotiate it or counter it or reject it and send me a rejection of offer without counter, counter offer form promulgated, created by the South Carolina Labor Licensing and Regulation Board. The state LLR. That is the only three things that can happen prior to this expiration date. Acceptance, counter, renegotiate, or reject it. So that is a major date there. That is of the essence. Now a buyer can rescind that offer any time prior to this uh, expiration date, uh, any time prior to, to the acceptance or renegotiation or anything, the buyer can rescind that at any time. So just want to make you aware of that. Please know that time is of the essence. That's an extremely important date in the contract. All dates are important in the contract, but that one specifically is very important. And right underneath that, it says a witness thereof. It talks about uh, the contract being executed by uh, parties as true to their best of their knowledge. But if the signee is not a party, meaning let's say somebody has a power of attorney, the appropriate legal documents are either attached or going to be delivered to the other party within so many calendar days. That's pretty easy. If it's an estate or there's a power of attorney or a personal representative, um, there's documentation for that and you can deliver that to the other party to let them know, hey, we have authority to sign this offer and this contract. Right underneath that, you got four buyers. Buyers shall initial and date all changes in this contract and initial all pages. That's pretty self-explanatory. Got four buyer lines and then the notice address of the buyer. Typically in, in our brokerage here, um, the buyer's notice address is gonna be the brokerage that the buyer agent is from, email address of the, of the buyer agent. Um, it, it could be the buyer's personal, physical home address or email address. I'm not gonna really recommend that. I really think, especially when you're utilizing professionals, a professional real estate agents, that really needs to be the buyer's brokerage address. And look at all the uh, initials down there on the bottom of that page. So you got initial those. And the four seller lines, the notice address of the seller. This is very specific because the due diligence termination fee is delivered to the seller at a notice address when a contract is terminated with a notice of termination and the fee. 
Now, I like to tell our agents here at Berkshire Hathaway Home Services, CD and Joiner Realtors, the notice address most of the time is going to be the listing brokerage. And so that's gonna be, for example, here uh, at my brokerage, 1016 Woods Crossing Road here in Greenville, South Carolina, 29607. That's the notice address. So if a buyer is contracting on a property that we have listed, the buyer would bring their termination fee here to 1016 Woods Crossing Road. That's gonna be the notice address. We could put our email, my email, or the listing agent's email. Um, and if, if, if you're still using fax, you can put your fax number there. Um, but most of the time it's just going to be an email address. Now, I will say this, because we talked about due diligence fees, um, most of the time it's going to be a check. Now, there can be the ability to send money to the seller via electronic means. Could be Venmo, could be PayPal, could be Cash App, whatever it may be. Could be a money order. Um, you can put an, a Venmo address here. You could put a, a, a address for PayPal. You could put a Cash App address here. There's nothing stopping you from doing that. Uh, so I just want to let you know that's where that would be for the buyer to deliver notice and that termination fee, and that's where it's going to be here. The rest of the contract is just the buyer's agent, the company, the license number of the buyer's agent, the office code where the buyer's agent's license out of, the buyer's agent's email address, buyer's agent's telephone number, and same thing for the seller. Now, specifically for Berkshire Hathaway Home Services, seat and joiner agents, okay, especially underneath my licensure. If you're with another broker, do what they say. I like to see all this information filled out when you make the offer. You can go right on the South Carolina Labor Licensing and Regulation website and find the other agent's information by looking up a license on SCLLR website, okay? Put that information in there. Get the information upon offer time. Don't have this be blank. Don't depend on somebody else filling this out for you. Do your job, do your due diligence, do the best you can for your buyer and fill all this out. The attorneys are gonna need it, the lenders are gonna need it, and let's just make sure that we're not taking the easy road, take the high road, fill this information out, go to the LLR website. That is gonna conclude this particular contract video. I hope you have enjoyed it, the SCR Form 310. Let me make some disclaimers here and disclosures, okay? First of all, A, number one, again, I've already said it, I'm not an attorney, okay? I cannot give you legal advice. This is my understanding, just trying to help out agents with Berkshire Hathaway Home Services, CDN and Joiner Realtors, understand and be able to write out a contract and know the basics of what this contract means. If you want a further legal explanation, seek out an attorney, get legal advice as much as you want with a licensed South Carolina attorney. Number two, the South Carolina Association of Realtors did not in any way tell me to do this video or in any way uh, have anything to do with the making of this video. This is strictly more for the understanding and training of Berkshire Hathaway Home Services, CDA and Joiner agents that are with us. Now I realize this will be on YouTube and it's gonna go out all over the state, basically all over the world, and uh, agents from across the state and from across multiple of the southern states will be watching this video, okay? So again, it was not in any way, shape or form uh, put on from the South Carolina Association of Realtors. They had nothing to do with it. I appreciate everybody down at the state association, but again, they will tell you they had nothing to do with the making of this video. So if you have a complaint on it, please do not contact South Carolina Association of Realtors. You can just contact me, because again, they, they do not have anything to do with it. Contact me. If I've said something wrong, I'd be more than happy to correct it. Remember, I'm not God. I'm an errant individual just like you. So that's my disclaimer. Again, not an attorney. South Carolina Association of Realtors didn't tell me to do this. We're doing it for training of our associated licensees and to help you as a licensed real estate agent here in South Carolina. Hope it helped. Have a great day. Take care.